so good morning. It is uh, such a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm a pastor in Wintergrove, Florida. I planted a church there in 2008 and uh, also serve as the executive director of the Florida Church Planning Network, which is one of your mission partners. Keith and I will serve on that uh, board together. And so Keith and Matt are both friends. And I am so, so glad to be here with you this morning as they're away getting uh, well-deserved rest. You are in the middle of a series here going through the Psalms, and as they asked people to preach, they said, just tell us which Psalm you want to preach. And I immediately said, give me Psalm 130. And so that's our text this morning, Psalm 130. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. I think it'll be on the screen behind me, uh, maybe on your screen at home as well if you're watching from there. But Psalm 130. Uh, it really is a beautiful song. I'm so excited that you guys get to spend this summer doing, uh, your, doing your way, making your way through the Psalms. Uh, it has been a great pleasure and joy in my life to put into practice one of probably one of the most enriching spiritual things in my life, uh, to read the Psalms on a daily basis. Uh, and so what a, what a great thing that you get to spend the summer doing that. So let's read together uh, in Psalm 130. We're going to read the entire Psalm. It's very short, eight verses. Uh, follow along with me if you would. It is a song of ascent. Psalmist sings, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. For with you, O Lord, show our iniquities. O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you may be feared. For that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and it is where I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, O Israel. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word. Eugene Peterson has summarized Psalm 130 like this. He said, Psalm 130 grapples mightily with suffering and sings its way through it and provides an usable experience for those who are committed to traveling the way of faith. Psalm 130 is a lesson in how to find and hold on to joy in your life, no matter what you're going through. It's a lesson book in how to sing your way through suffering. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were wrongly accused and thrown into prison, and uh, they were clearly being mistreated, as you read there, by the jailer who had put them in the stocks, their arms and their legs splayed out to induce the maximum amount of pain and cramping. They had been put in solitary confinement. It was the middle of the night. As bad days go, three bad dead. And yet, in all their exhaustion and pain and anguish, it says, as you read in Acts 16, verse 25, that they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, the two things mentioned in that verse strike me. It says that they were singing their way through their suffering. And that is a remarkable thing. To be so full of joy... Even in the midst of such obvious pain, it is a remarkable thing. It is the power of the gospel on display. It's what Christianity makes possible, and only Christianity. But the second thing there also strikes me, says that the prisoners were listening to him. And for us, I think that means the world is watching for this kind of joy. The world is looking for this kind of hope and peace, joy that sees its way through suffering. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous London preacher in the 20th century, Began a series of sermons on Sunday evenings in 1964 that became his book, Spiritual Depressions, which I can't recommend highly enough. He said this, he said, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. 
I think that's probably even more so today. And he went on to say, this was his rationale for that statement. He preached those sermons because he believed that, and here's why. He said, unhappy Christians are a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. There can be little doubt that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. Here's what he means and what it means for us this morning. You evangelize with your joy. Joy, at least joy to the degree that you can even sing as you're suffering, is a powerful apologetic for the truth of Christianity. So here's my question to you this morning as you prepare your heart to come to this text with me. What are you evangelizing people towards with your joy? Fathers, as you consider this Father's Day, here's my question just for you, and then I'm just going to leave you alone for the rest of the service, okay? But as you consider, how are you discipling your family through your joy? Because the things that you are easily excited about, guess what? Your kids will be excited about. I graduated from Florida State University. I'm three for three on graduating kids from high school to become Seminoles. I've discipled through my joy. But hopefully it is something greater than that for you. And hopefully it is for me too. What are you discipling your family towards through your joy? So to sing your way through suffering, to have this kind of joy that can do that, that's powerful enough even to face, face the hard times of life and not lose its song, you have to do four things. And they're really, if you look at this text, there are eight verses, there are four stanzas, two verses each, and we're just going to take each of those stanzas, and, uh, and there are four things. There are four, four different things that the psalmist here points us towards, and I'm going to make a gospel, gospel application for each as we go along, because, again, only the gospel makes this possible. But here are the four things. If you want to have this kind of joy, if you want to have a joy that can cause you to sing your way through even your suffering, these are the things that you need to be doing. You need to be first crying out. Secondly, you need to be waiting. Thirdly, you need to be hoping. And fourthly, you need to be fearing, because the right kind of fear is the thing that makes all this possible. And so, let's walk through the text together looking at each of those things. What it means to cry out, and to wait, and to hope, and to fear, because that is what the psalmist points us towards. So first, if you're going to sing your way through your suffering with immense joy, you have to be crying out. Look there at verse 1. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry out to you, O Lord. And he goes on. Again, Eugene Peterson describes Psalm 130 as suffering proclaimed and prayed. Suffering proclaimed and prayed. The Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, encourage us to address and overcome the hardest parts of life, but without becoming sentimental, which is good, because sentimentalism is an enemy of the spiritual life. And Christianity, at least today in America particularly, is overrun with sentimentalism. Flanner O'Connor defined sentimentalism as arriving at the happily ever after ahead of time. Now, back in my day, and then, you know, back in my day, if you wanted to watch a movie, you went to this place called Blockbuster and you rented it, and then you got this VHS tape that you went home and you could you could literally press the button and fast forward through and back. And if you've ever seen a movie that has like a really great ending, but there's some really uncomfortable parts in the middle, you know what I'm talking about? Like a movie where everything is okay in the end. But it's really scary, or it's really just riddled with anxiety in the middle. Have you ever been tempted to just, if you've seen it before, just to, you're watching it for the second or third time with somebody else, you're like, can we just fast forward through all the bad parts and get to the good stuff? 
I do that, I confess. And that's what Flannery O'Connor means. You fast forward through all the bad stuff to get to the good stuff as fast as possible. Sentimentalism tries to avoid the hard realities of life, but the Psalms, and this one in particular, help us to live in the real world. And to do that, you have to live from the depths. You see that? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Or from Psalm 38, listen to the psalmist here. He says, O Lord, all my longings are before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails, but you, O Lord, do I wait for you. Longings, sighings, your throbbings, your deepest dreams, desires, and disappointments from the depths. I cry, the psalmist says, the world needs deep people who understand the deeper drives and motivations of the heart. People who live from the depths. And to do that, you, you do it by being honest with God about how you feel. And then, having done that, you resolve whatever emotional tension you're Experiencing through theological reflection. That's what the Psalms teach us to do. It's why we're going, my, this is why it's so easy is we're doing this in my church too. We're doing some of the through some of our favorite Psalms as well. And that's what we're learning is you start, the Psalms model how to do this. They, they teach you teach us to start with honesty. So you start just with honesty, but then you do theology. But you have to start with yourself and where you are and how you're feeling and whatever's going on and whatever it feels like. There's a genre of prayer in the Bible called lament. And in lament, you air your dirty laundry. You don't go back. You proclaim your suffering, but you proclaim your suffering by praying it. The opposite of lament is what the scriptures mean by complaining. And there's a fine line between lament, a lament and a complaint. Philippians 2 says, do all things without complaining. So lament, good. Complaining, bad. What's the difference? Complaining is proclaiming your suffering to whoever will hear without praying it. It's talking about God behind his back. Lament is proclaiming your suffering by praying it, by talking to God about it. Lament is hard. It feels irreverent to raise your fists and maybe even, of course, under your breath, say some cuss words and... Tell God how it really feels and not hold back, but at least you're talking to God when you're doing that. In the prayer, what matters most is not that you say it right, but that you keep talking to Him. Now, there's another substitute for lament. You could say, maybe you're going through a hard time of some kind, you could say, you know, there's no use crying over spilled milk. Just suck it up and get back to work and put on a happy face and pretend like it's not a big deal, but here's the problem, it is, it is a big deal. All that stuff is deep down in there, you're just not being honest with yourself. And the problem with ignoring it like that is that it will eventually come out sideways and it will be much, much worse. You can refuse to express negative emotions and suppress them instead and call that faith, but it is not, it's actually the opposite. I uh, teach Paul Miller's prayer seminar on occasion, if you're familiar with the book Praying Life, uh, and uh, the whole seminar is really trying to help people get to the proper gospel footing so that they can be real with God about how they feel about what's happening in your life. Because that's the main barrier to prayer for most people. If we are indeed saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone and not our own good works, then we don't have to be right. 
Isn't the truth of the gospel that we aren't right? That we're right with God because of Jesus' rightness and not our own. And so if that's true, then there is a certain freedom that it's, it's okay to not be okay. Now, it's not okay to say that way, but we don't have to be right. And if we don't have to be right, then our prayers don't have to be right. We just have to be real. The gospel is what actually makes this possible. Our prayers, the Bible says, go up into heaven, dress up in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what makes them pleasing and acceptable to God. Not that we do them right, or that we say the right things, or that we only express the proper emotions. People will often refuse to pray until they're sure they're praying the right thing. But what we say when we teach the seminar is, how can you know if it's the right thing to say unless you're already talking to God about it? You can be as selfish as you want to with God, as long as you're talking to him about it. Because if you're talking to him, then he can change you. So here, here's the advice of this song and the rest of the songs. If you're sad, be sad. Just make sure you're talking to God about your sadness. If you're angry, be angry. Express your anger however you need to. Just tell God you're angry to his face. Don't talk to him. Don't talk about him behind his back. If you're frustrated, if you're scared, Take these emotions right to God in prayer. It is not a lack of faith to be so brutally honest. It is an act of faith. To think that you have to think and feel in the right way and not just be real, that's unbelief. That's the real sin. Psalm 130 says, if you want to sing through your suffering, the first thing that you have to do is to be crying out, to be talking to God and not about Him, learning to lament, not worrying about whether you're feeling or saying it right, but knowing that He wants to hear about what's real. And if it is honest, then that's enough. He is a God of infinite compassion and understanding, so be crying out. Second, if you're going to sing your way through suffering, if you're going to find this kind of joy, not only do you have to be crying out and living from the depths, honestly, before the Lord, you have to be waiting also. Now, skip over verses 3 and 4 for now, because that's, that's the, really the crux and the important stuff. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So look down verses 5 and 6, and here's what I want you to see. Waiting. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, what do we mean by waiting? There's another verse in Psalm 46 that says, Be still. And know that I am God, and that's perhaps the best description of what the Bible means by waiting. I had a sleepless night this past week. It's miserable, isn't it? Isn't it just the worst? You'd be up in the middle of the night, and you know the morning will eventually come, but you can't make it come as fast as you'd like for it to, and you can't do anything to speed up the clock. All you can do is sit in the darkness and wait for the sun to come up over the horizon. But waiting is not passive resignation. It is strategic non-doing. Because being still is how you come to know God. Being still because you know that God is at work and it's His work and not yours that matters most. The psalm there in Psalm 46 teaches us to be still in order to know God. I know I keep quoting him. He's written uh, quite a few books on the Psalms, but Eugene Pearson here again, he says, God is the beginning, the center, 
the end of the world's life, of its, of its existence itself, but we are often unaware of God's action except dimly and peripherally. Because we're thinking and worrying, we're up in the middle of the night, you're up in the middle of the night, what are you thinking about? All the things that you need to do, or all the things that you've not done, or all the things that are scaring you to death, or got you all worked up. Here's what he says. Eugene Pearson goes on to say, we need to quit what we're doing and be still. Because when we're still, listen to this, this is so helpful. He says, the dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations goes quiet. And when it does, we become aware of the real world. God's world. And it's so much larger, so much more full of energy and possibility than our ego-fueled plans and actions, so much clearer and saner than the plans that we have projected. See, waiting, waiting is flexing your believing muscles because you know that unless the Lord builds and unless the Lord watches, all of our doing and all of our watching is in vain. The opposite of this waiting is anxious toil. Not merely work, but the drivenness of the work underneath the work, the need to save and prove ourselves and take control of our lives. Because in our unbelief, in our wrong ideas about who God is and how He works in the world, we really do, we really do think that if it's going to be, it's up to me. You ever heard that? If it's going to be, it's up to me. So I better get busy, which is why I need to send it home as fast as I can, because there's a lot of work that I've got to do the next day to make sure. I can keep control of my life the way I need to, you see? My sister-in-law, who is not a Christian, recently posted uh, this quote on her Instagram story. It broke my heart, and it stuck with me, but um, she, it just, you know, she put a graphic up and then this pasted on top, and I don't know who the quote's attributed to, but it really doesn't matter. Here's what it says. Nobody, nobody is coming to save you, to choose you, to validate you. This has always been your job. You have to love yourself so fiercely that you have no other choice but to be strong for yourself, to fight for yourself, to be yourself, and to build yourself. Sin is man substituting himself for God. That's the essence of sin. Man substituting himself for God, replacing God's work with my work. See, no one's coming for you, so you have to do all those things for yourself. And doing like that, doing for ourselves, it makes us feel good because it makes us feel godlike. In that same chapter I quoted from earlier, Peterson writes this, it says, Sometimes, actually, doing nothing is the gospel thing to do. And I've always been stopped, and I use that word, Quite literally there, stopped by that phrase, the gospel thing. What does he mean by that? Doing nothing is the gospel thing to do? That doesn't sound right, but when you think about it, if sin is man substituting himself for God, then salvation, the essence of it anyway, is God substituting himself for man. What is our gospel? Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He substituted himself for us in his obedient life and his sacrificial death. The gospel is grace. We are saved by God's doing, and so if that's true, then the gospel thing in salvation is to do nothing. Tim Keller would say, he'd say, all you need is need, all you need is nothing. The problem is, is that's the one thing nobody has. Everybody has something that they're relying on. Everybody has something that they're trying to get accredited through. Everybody has something, but all you really need is nothing. Doing nothing 
is the hardest thing in the world. Can I get an amen in the Presbyterian Church? Right? I mean, doing nothing is the hardest thing in the world. Because it's when we feel the most vulnerable, the most scared, when there's nothing that can be done. What do you do then? It's hard because we simply believe that it is our doing and not God that really does save. The last words of the Buddha were, strive without ceasing. The last words of our Lord Jesus were, it's finished. So the story of Christianity didn't begin with striving, it began with waiting with prayer. When you're waiting for somebody, you're saying whatever you're about to do can't begin until they get there. And in Acts chapter 1, we see that there was a mission that God gave his people. But first, before they got after the mission, the church waited and prayed for God to come. And as they waited and prayed, Because he always comes. His The grace of the way comes from this important truth. That something is happening even when nothing is happening. You know that? Something's always happening even when it appears like nothing's happening. John Piper famously said, God is always doing one thousand things. You may be aware of three of them. And that's always come through me. And it should do as well. The prophet Isaiah says, God works for those who wait for him. Isaiah says, he is waiting to be gracious to you. He is waiting to be gracious to you. Think of that. He's waiting to be gracious to you. He's waiting for your waiting. He's waiting for you to stop trying to do it all by yourself. And when you're too tired to go on, when you're beyond your capacity, when you're up against something that your strength is not sufficient for, and you finally say, I can't do this, then he steps in and he begins to do the work for you. And that's a reason to sing, isn't it? Even in and through your suffering. The third, you're going to sing your way through your suffering. Then you have to be crying out. You've got to learn how to be living honestly before the Lord, bringing your heart's deepest desires and dreams to him and cry out to him. You have to learn how to be still and have a habit a lifestyle being still before him in order to know him. But thirdly, if you're going to sing your way through stuff, you're going to find this kind of joy uh, that evangelizes the world, then you have to be hoping as well. And that's the third, the final things actually, verses 7 and 8. So if you look there, it goes like this. Oh, Israel, he says, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is thrown for redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. Where hope is an important word in Christian faith, an important word throughout the Psalms, throughout all of the Bible. Now, Charlie, we can tell you this, but what, what you need to know about me is that I am a uh, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. Okay, so my church is a steady dose of this, and I've used all my old illustrations on them, which means I can't use them anymore. But when you go on the road, you preach, you can pull them back out. See, so that's what you get this morning. But one of my favorite scenes in the books. Uh, in the movie as well, but really in the books, is in the darkest moment of the Lord of the Rings books, so, you know, a thousand pages or whatever, there's this scene. Uh, it is the place when all seems lost, when truly it feels like, okay, evil has won, uh, there's no use going on any further. Sam, who is the true hero of the story, is Frodo's companion, if you're, if you're familiar, I, I shorthand the Lord of the Rings stuff here, because we don't have time to get into all this, but 
He looks up into the sky, the protagonist of the story does, and in, in, in all of the despair and the hopelessness he feels, he sees a star shining in the blackness. And here is the way that Tolkien wrote it. It's why you should probably read Tolkien and not to take my word for it. But he says that Sam peered up out of this grief-stricken place. He looked up into the sky and saw the star shining brightly in all the blackness. And, and here's what Tolkien says. He says that the beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him, for like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing form. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now that is beautiful language, but here's what it means. Hope. Hope is the ability to look up out of whatever you're going through to the future that God has promised in order to be pierced by the beauty of it so that you can get the proper perspective for the present. The proper perspective that compared to the joy and the glory and the beauty of what is coming, whatever cross we endure now, in the end, it will be a small and passing thing. See, hope one of the theological virtues is faith looking forward to a future that is certain but not yet here. It reminds us that there's a story being written, and you might be in the most scary part, but you have to remember it's the middle of the story. It's not the end yet. There is a happily ever after on the way. And I don't know how it's going to come, and I don't know when or through whom. I don't have any of the details, but I do know this, that all of the stories that God writes and he writes every story. All of the stories that he writes are resurrection stories. And the psalmist knew it too. Listen to him again, verses 7 and 8. With the Lord is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel. So this word redemption is there. And that word redemption means rescue. It refers to bad being turned to good. All of the sad things coming untrue. Evil being overturned and the triumph of, you know, the good guys coming to pass at last. But notice it doesn't just say that God redeems. Look carefully at the wording there. It says, with him is redemption. In other words, this is not only what God does, it's foundational to who God is. Wherever God is, there is redemption. Whenever God gets involved, redemption. These are the only kinds of stories that God tells because he is the main character in every story and he is a rescuer. He is a savior. So it says, with the Lord, not only is there redemption, but God said, with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. Right? Not just a little bit, more than enough. Always redemption. Now, the couple of lines in Hebrew in these verses highlight the character of God. That's what we're going to see here. What God does flows out of who God is. There will be redemption tomorrow. We can be sure of this because today, Look there and every other day, God is full of steadfast love. And that's another beautiful word. There's so much here in this psalm. It's almost infuriating to only have a few minutes together. That word is the word hesed, or God's one-way love, God's stubborn love. His, his one-way, him-towards-us love that has nothing to do with us or what's going on in our world. There are no fluctuations in God's love. There are no conditions to God's love. There's no end to God's love. It's Calvary love. It's uneven. Me for you love. And so again, we find our way to the gospel. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to redeem us 
from our sin. Isn't that great news? Hello. Are you? Uh, that didn't work. I didn't pick that up. Yeah, okay. Just making sure you're out there. That's good news. But it gets better. Not only did he die for our sins, but he was raised on the third day. And the reason that's good news, too, is because Jesus is alive and because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And what that means is that all of our stories will become resurrection stories, too. Not an overstatement. Every story is Jesus is no longer in the grave, but is alive and reigning in heaven as a resurrection story. And so the opposite of hope, see, is hopelessness or cynicism. Uh, I have a lot of repenting personally to do here, but have you ever, have you ever said, whatever? This is my favorite. This is, this, I'm on a personal mission to ban this from the lectionary of the people I pastor and you too if you'll let me. It is what it is. My people know if you say that around me, I'll, I'll probably smack you in the face. It is what it is, you know? Or, or, been there, done that. Really? That's quite arrogant, don't you think? You've been there, done that? I mean, you've seen it all? Really? Now, God, who alone has all the knowledge about how the world works and where we're going, he's not the same. Nothing is what it is. Nothing is what it is. Everything is becoming what God is making it. Which is something different than it is today. And so we don't have to give in to cynicism or hopelessness. In fact, the gospel is the power of God. That was another amen from that that you missed, okay? The gospel is the power of God to change any person, any marriage, any wayward child, any set of circumstances that you might be going through. And when you're hopeless, what you're doing is you start looking at tomorrow through the lens of today and conclude that it's probably just going to be more of the same. But it's an expression of your own disappointment in the way you've given up on life. Hope, though, hope starts with tomorrow. It starts with the future, and then it works its way backwards to the present. Now, it is not the way it's supposed to be right now, but we're in the middle of the story. Hope doesn't look at tomorrow through the fears and worries of today. Hope reimagines what is right now in light of the promise of what is on the way. It doesn't move forward from today, but backward from tomorrow. And we know what comes tomorrow, don't we? What comes tomorrow? Redemption. Resurrection. There you go. I got we got we got really know what saying amen now. We're getting some work done here. Resurrection. What comes tomorrow? The stories tell us. What comes tomorrow is the spell will be broken, and magic will fall from the sky, making everything beautiful again. The snow will fall. Spring is coming. Aslan is on the move. That's what tomorrow holds. We're talking about singing through our suffering. Well, that reminds me of little orphan Amy, little orphan Amy. You know the song, don't you? You want to sing it? Let's both sing it. We'll just, we'll just quote it. The most well-known song from the movie? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrows of our sin. 
It's so hard to even say it without starting to break this poem. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, she says, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. You gotta hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. That's hope. Powerful hope. See, the promise is that you can get joy before you get the change of circumstances that you need. It's important. You can get the joy that you need before you get the change of circumstances that you need. You can get the joy to help you sing through your circumstances while you wait for the future that God has promised. If you hate today, keep loving tomorrow. That's hope. We are hope-shaped creatures. We are being pulled, not pushed through life by some imagined future. Psalm 130 is explicit. Tomorrow will be redemption, resurrection, but not even, not just resurrection. Tomorrow will mean something even better, a consolation that will be so great, so complete, that it will swallow up any residual grief we have, because at the end of all things, what God has done in the whole of all our combined stories, when we finally begin to see it, will be so perfect and so beautiful and so good and so right that it will elicit our total eternal rejoicing. And we can enter into that joy even now. But to learn new the last thing. You're going to see me wait your suffering. You have to be crying out, living honestly before the Lord and learning to be still and wait on Him and being so focused on the future and pulling the future back into the present and living your emotional reality today in light of the beauty of the promise tomorrow. But lastly, if you're going to see me wait your suffering, doing all of that, really it's all anchored in this idea you have to be fearing. You have to be fearing also. And the theological center of the psalm is verses 3 to 4. If you go back there, really the anchor for everything else he has to say here comes in these verses. And we read them earlier in the, in the service, but we'll read them again where he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who stand, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore, or that you might be feared. The crux of Psalm 130 is how God deals with sins, with our sins. See the verse 8 also. Because that's the real storm. When a storm hits your life, the real storm is the one that happens on the inside. Think of the story of Jesus and his disciples on the boat uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because it's a really important story, and it's one that's shaped me in profound ways. If you think about that story, a storm comes up, but that's not the real storm. The real storm is what comes next, because what happens to them is the storm comes up, and then a storm erupts inside of them as well, because they're in the middle of this overwhelming thing they find themselves in. And here's what they say. They turn to Jesus in that moment, at least Mark reports, and they say this, do you not care that we're perishing? Does he not care? Like, where have they been? But this is what happens. That storm that they were in caused them to begin to question his goodness and love and care for them. And in suffering, that's what can happen. You can begin to wonder if you're being punished, if your sins have finally caught up with you, or, you know what, I've been worried that I've been wrong about God all along, and see, this is evidence, I, he, maybe he isn't who I thought he was, you can begin to imagine that God has forsaken you, and that is, see, that's the real death, that's the real death, that's the really, really dark place, the really low place, and all of the rest of the psalm has to say about how you make your way through suffering is anchored in this teaching in verses 3 through 4 about how God deals with sin, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? That is our great fear, that when a storm hits, we can't help but wonder if that is true. Does God count our sins? And then 
when he's had enough unleash something bad on our lives? Now you would say no. No, we know that's not the case, but then when a storm comes, you start to doubt it because we are all moralists. At the end of the day, we believe somewhere inside of us there's this wrong idea, this unbelief. We believe that God is good to good people. So if it's going bad, then it's probably because somewhere along the way he's been bad. The psalmist here admits the truth that God does count sins. Can I retranslate that for you? If you, O oh Lord, mark iniquities, uh-oh. If God counts sins, we're all done. We're all condemned. But we have to ask an important question. Is that the way God does it? Does God repay us according to our sin? Does God indeed count our sins and keep them locked away until he's had enough and then he kind of unleashes whatever bad thing he has intended for us all along. The answer in Psalm 30, 130 here is a loud no. It says, in fact, God does not count sin. Quite the opposite. He forgives. Look at what it says. If you, Lord, mark iniquity, you stand, but with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Forgiveness means that God treats you as if you've never sinned. He does not count your sins. He covers them. It's as if there is no sin on your record. Now, how? The answer is found in Jesus Christ. God is a God of infinite justice. That's a good thing. Every wrong is accounted for and righted, but he does not count our wrongs against us. Here's what the Christian, you know, the crux of Christianity really is, the gospel message of Christianity. God does not count our sins against us. They were accounted instead against Jesus. Jesus Christ died upon the cross. As a substitute for our sins. Our sins were laid upon him. They were deposited into his account. And through his obedient life and death, his glory, his righteousness, all of his personal beauty is credited to us. So not only does God not count our sins against us, he credits Jesus' righteousness to us. Jesus took himself all of the wrath and the curse that we are deserving of, and we, when we put our faith in him, we get all of the goodness and glory and blessing and all of that that he is deserving of. Now that's an amazing truth. And it should cause you to fear. Look at what it says. It says, if you, O Lord, mark, mark sins, you would think you'd be afraid of the first part, not the second part, wouldn't you? Like, if you, O Lord, mark sins, we should really be afraid. But look what he says. No, that's not where the fear comes. It's if you, O Lord, mark iniquities, you can stand, but with you there's forgiveness. And because there's forgiveness with you, that's the real reason to be afraid. What, what could that possibly mean? Well, Michael Reeves has written about how the loss of the fear of God in our culture has ironically ushered in this age of anxiety that we're going through. Fearing God in the Bible is not being afraid of Him. In reality, if you properly fear God, you won't be afraid of anything. The fear of the Lord, according to Reeves, is to be so overwhelmed by all that God is and God does that you just tremble before Him. You just melt before Him by His, you know, in light of His greatness and His goodness. God is a great God, but He is also a good God. This God who, who is high above the heavens is a God who forgives sin, and that's true. The truth of his greatness and his goodness should make us tremble, it should overwhelm us, so much so that everything else, even every suffering we're made to endure, becomes a small thing in comparison and begin to sing your way through it. So what's the takeaway? Now listen to Psalm 32. This is what they're preaching at my church this morning, so I've been thinking about it. It says this, blessed, in other words, happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, again, happy is the man 
against whom the Lord counts no sins. There is a happiness. There is a buoyant joy and peace that can consume your life when you know that your sins have been forgiven. That can make all of the hard things, all of the sad things, all of the scariest things small in comparison. Have you dealt with God about your sins? Do you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was converted from this text. So one of the most powerful movements of the Spirit in the history of Christianity came from the truth of verses 3 through 4. Wesley was a, a good Christian. He was a better Christian than you. And he knew it. Such a good Christian that he decided he would become a pastor because that's why people become pastors. You know, did you know that? But even that didn't seem like enough. He wasn't, you know, didn't satisfy his conscience. So being a pastor wasn't enough, so he decided to become a missionary. That's why missionaries become missionaries. A lot of times. He thought maybe that would be enough, and it wasn't. He, even in spite of all that, sunk into the depths. Despite all of us being good, and then one day a friend asked him a simple question, John, do you believe that Christ died for your sins? And he answered, I believe that he died for the sins of the world. And his friend responded, no, no, that's not the question I asked you. John, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And John Wesley had the theology, but he didn't have the personal experience, the personal knowing that with God there's forgiveness for his sins. And as the story goes, he went back to his room and grabbed his Bible and it fell open as it were to Psalm 130 to these verses, and he read them and he began to weep. And the next morning, he went to a Bible study on Romans and later wrote his journal. My heart was strangely torn to God for joy. The joy came. It's not a coincidence that John Wesley and his brother Charles went on to write some of the most well loved and most beloved hymns of our faith. They learned to sing for joy in Christ Jesus, to sing. All the way through life, even through suffering. Things like, oh, for a thousand times to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God are shown. The triumphs of his love. The Holy Spirit can confuse things for you. As you learn, through faith in Jesus Christ, through crying out, and waiting and hoping and fearing. Let's pray together that you do your work among us, please. Come and meet with us, your people here, in these last moments that we have to be together. Thank you for the kindness and the patience of, of this church to bear with me, who I, I think probably went over my allotted time, but nevertheless, you are worthy of all this consecration. What an amazing, what an amazing song. Would you bring home the truth of it to our hearts that we might be people who do just that, who learn to sing through all the ups and downs of life? Particularly through the hard parts, that we might ourselves become a great apologetic for the truth of the gospel, a people of great joy, seeing our way through suffering.